I'm Aunt Kelly Anakin. And I'm Molly of Mitchell Sanchez. We're here to take birth control and talk about The Handmaid's Tale. And we're all out of birth control. And hand sanitizer. And toilet paper. Thanks, Thanks Trump. Trump. <laughs> this is read all over your handy Handmaid's Tale recap. Blessed be the fruit. Surprise. Surprise, redheads. <laughs> Guess who's back? Back again. Back again. Da-na-na. I love it. I love it. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody, we but also you. Molly. I know. Hi, Kelly. We are friends and we talk. <laughs> we're friends and we talk and we're trapped inside. Mm-hmm. We're recording in, I'm recording in my apartment. You're recording in your apartment because of Shelter in Place. Shelter in Place. Shout out. Sweet baby Gavin Newsom. Finally pulled yes. the trigger on this shit. They finally yep. closed Disneyland, which was open for far too long, considering that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, I also got somebody tweeted at me the other day. I'm, I assume a redhead who follows me on Twitter saying to not say shelter in place, but um, I, I'm just going to use that. I'm sorry if it bugs anybody. I apologize. But uh, no, I mean, the order is called shelter in place. Like, there's so much semantic dumb fuckery happening right now. Like, I don't care what we call it. Just stay the fuck inside. <laughs> yeah, we're going to stay the fuck inside 2020. How's that for semantics? <laughs> um, yeah. But so, you could go on walks. You know. How are you doing? Staying the fuck. Yeah. Staying the fuck inside aside. Um, yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I thought maybe we could just tell everybody kind of what we've been doing since our last episode. I've mm-hmm. been working a lot at my normal job and mm-hmm. I did my one person show Kelly Anakin's lack of variety hour back in October. In theory, I was really gonna, you know, put the pedal to the metal on doing live stand up um, in Q1 of 2020 <laughs> and that <laughs> Turns out, not a great idea, because we can't be anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm, um, I'm feeling good in general, you know? There's just um, a lot of social things happening for me, or there were, there's less <laughs> so, you know? I'm doing stuff on the board for Killing My Lobster. Woo! Yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's things happening. I'm, I'm working on some writing stuff. And doing a lot of reading, uh, doing mm-hmm. a lot of cooking as usual. And I mean, that's, you know, that's been pretty much the life before and post shelter in place. I know that kids are going to ask, what are you uh, reading and watching and listening to? I'm all about that Tiger King life right now. <laughs> I'm on like Same. episode, I think episode five is my next episode. And it is just like blowing my mind. I love a rural queer. Um mm-hmm. Joe Exotic is phenomenal, and uh, I just, I have just been, like, watching that with my jaw dropped. Like, it's basically Florida Man, the series, (laughs) and it's been just a beautiful piece of escapism. I just finished The Queen of the Night by Alexander Chi, which is about a... (laughs) 
Uh, it's about an orphan who becomes a circus horseback rider and then a courtesan and then a soprano in the opera. And I don't know. It it's something I received as a gift a while back and I was kind of on the fence about how I felt about it. But I think I enjoyed it. It's like a very picaresque novel. Um, and I was kind of like, do we need picaresque novels set in the 1800s anymore? Like, you know, we have like the Xbox now. Um, I don't have an Xbox and I know PS4 is really the thing that people love. Okay. Get off my back. Mm-hmm. You, <laughs> no one was on your back. <laughs> Literally no one. I was going to say, you can't see me, but you can see me because we're on a video chat. <laughs> um, and I am doing the audiobook of the mirror and the light, which is the conclusion of Hillary Mantel's Cromwell trilogy. Um, so it's Wolf Hall bringing up the bodies. They made it into a mini series a while back, and it's phenomenal. And I just have really been enjoying that language, just sort of washing around my head. I just ordered a book called Fasting Girls, which is the history mm. of anorexia nervosa. Really leading into this <laughs> pandemic, I was like, "Let's make it dark." You know that Leonard Cohen song? Uh, you want it darker? Welcome to my brain. <laughs> Wow. Wow. A lot of good um, stuff there. Yeah. And I watched for lighter fare, if you don't feel like <laughs> staring into the existential abyss. Uh, I did watch all of High Fidelity on Hulu, which Ooh. I enjoyed. Um, I'm see it. getting back into what we do in the shadows, the FX comedy based on the movie, which is maybe one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in my whole life. Uh, if you haven't watched what we do in the shadows and you just want to laugh, it's a great one to it's watch. So funny. And Top Chef is back. So I'm doing a uh, fantasy league for Top Chef with my uh, ex-wife, Amy. We are we are doing this thing. Her name is called Team Scallop. Mine is Team Male Surprise because I wound up with way more dude chefs than I was planning on my team. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm super amped for my girl, Nini Nguyen. I really want her to take it all. We'll see what happens. I just am so grateful that it's back now. When I cannot leave my house. Nice. That's so fun. Yeah. And so what, okay, well, what have you been up to? And then I want to hear what you've been reading, watching, listening to. Great. So since we got, well, since we stopped recording, I've been missing everybody. Um, And I also. Well, now I feel like an asshole. That's our pattern. I also miss you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Scorpio. (laughs) I got it. I got it out of her, y'all. I got it out of her. I think about um, you every day. Okay, good. Me too. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. Oh, I got laid off from my day job a week before all of this happened. Boo! So I was like primed for weirdness. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a uh, business is slow sort of in the lead up to this. I, so I, I do was- think that primed for weirdness should be the title <laughs> of your like Gilda Radner-esque memoir. <laughs> well, hopefully not a Gilda Radner mem- memoir because she dies at the end. Yeah, of I don't mean so. like, you know, like you as a know, comedian just- writing a book, mm-hmm. not dying, it- living forever. By the way. Thank you. <laughs> Prime for weirdness, Gilda- living forever, the Molly Sanchez story. <laughs> uh, BT dubs. It is sad, but it is a really good audiobook. Gilda Radner's audiobook, which is called It's Always Something. Anyway, great audiobook. Um, anywho, so my partner Mitch and I were planning to move to LA either by the end of March or in April. 
And so I've been interviewing for copywriting jobs in in L.A. and looking for apartments. And this just brought it to a screeching halt. Yeah. So I don't really I've been actually struggling a little bit because it's just like I really don't know. I didn't know what was going to happen next with my life just with the move already. And then now with this, it's like I double and triple don't know what the next couple months of my life look like. So when it feels good, it feels like anything can happen. And when it feels bad, it feels like, oh, shit. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, this is this is a real challenge. And I'm really proud of you for, you know, just um, bobbing your way through it. I mean, there's nothing there's <laughs> nothing any of us can do right now. We're all really being confronted with loss of control on so many levels. But I know I know you're going to come out on top because that's what you do. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I feel that way too. And I'm having a really good day today. I just want to be like real transparent that uh, it's a hard time for old Molly Sanchez. Uh, so be nice to me, everybody. Um, but anyway, and then my last show with Killing My Lobster got canceled because of this. So that was just like, I, I'm having trouble doing art and I'm having trouble doing irregular work stuff. So, you know, just getting by. Yeah, we're really um, all getting just slapped down right now like oh yeah. you thought you were gonna do literally anything nope you are not yeah yeah but i'm feeling a, a lot better today and what have i been reading and watching and doing um i've been like i i was a podcast fiend sort of before this and now because i'm taking longer walks i've been like mainlining a million bazillion podcasts and my favorites are you're wrong about have you listened to this no oh god kelly's so good i do oh love hearing how people are wrong so i'm intrigued you are gonna have the biggest crush on one of the hosts of this podcast i definitely do her name is sarah marshall she's a writer and she's like one of the smartest people i've ever heard um she and her uh friend michael whose last name i don't remember because it shows which host i like the best but uh her co-host michael of sarah exactly uh he is a writer for the huffington post also very smart and funny um but they do this podcast called you're wrong about where they sort of debunk cultural assumptions about things and uh it's fascinating and it's so smart if you want a place to start redheads i would say listen to either the stonewall riots episode or the kitty genovese episode they're so good uh come for that stay for like the multi-episode deep dive into the oj simpson trial and the dc snipers uh it's so good it's See, so this smart is like this is like true crime i can deal with oh yeah because um, i used to be a big sword and scale listener but then i kind of felt like they were demonizing mentally ill criminals too much but this is like Mm-mm. this is stuff that's like on a much broader scale and like things that have a cultural impact are more interesting to me than like individual incidents of horrifying events it's so fucking good it's really great i highly recommend you're wrong about i've also been mainlining uh the bloom saloon which i always consider our spiritual sister podcast but um it's they deep dive into uh judy bloom books chapter by chapter and it's so soothing and so fun and uh, i actually got to partially guest on a recent episode because they asked their fans to read parts of the chapter and send it in. So I basically I did that for their last episode. Hell yeah! They're reading. Thank you. They're reading just as long as we're together, which is a really short, really sweet friendship book by Judy Bloom. So enjoying their coverage of that. 
and then watching, I also watched Tiger King. I love a true crime documentary where a woman isn't beaten and maimed. So, I mean, not to spoil the end of Tiger King for you. But. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, hashtag Carol Baskin did nothing wrong. Okay. Um, Ooh, okay, wait. I feel like we shouldn't talk about this right now. Just we're not going to talk about it, but I'm just list- going to let. Yeah, but I want to I sync with you offline. Great. Uh, like friends. To talk about Carol. <laughs> um. We need to talk about Carol. Okay. <laughs> That's our su- our sister <laughs> podcast that we're making because we're bored. I'm like, listen, please don't set people up for disappointment because I actually am like shockingly busy despite never leaving my apartment. Same. I've same, been same. so aggressive about like doing virtual hangs and things like this. Once again, because know. you know my hobby is staring into the abyss and now I'm like, maybe <laughs> I do it too much. <laughs> I've also been I, I don't know I always started watching Killing Eve which is great I okay very unpopular opinion and I promise this is not just me being a Scorpio contrarian I am not the Phoebe Waller-Bridge like fangirl that everybody is as you know because I, I won't am. watch Fleabag season two um which I actually I, I was like reconsidering it and then I went with our friend who is a great comic here in the Bay Area, Jackie Kelly, uh, just tweeted for Tignataro. What's up, Jackie? So she wanted to go see the National Theater um, broadcast of Fleabag. And I hadn't seen her in a while. We just like had plans that kept getting like scuttled. So I was like, I'll go. I love you so much, Jackie. I will go and watch this. And once again, I was like, I hate this character so much. I have no interest in watching another season of this character, especially if she is like less horrible because I'm like, but she's horrible. Anyway, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I was going to try to do it well, for you during shelter in place. I was like, I just fa- I fucking can't. Anyway, I'm curious to think to hear what you like, what you think of Killing Eve, because I watched, I think, the first season. I haven't done any of the subsequent seasons. I absolutely love it. I'm only like five episodes in. I love it. I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Absolute doodle. Except for I don't want to be an actress. But um, Oh, I was going to yeah, say, I'm, I think we need to like stretch you out so you're taller. <laughs> and I need to get a, a giant birthmark on my forehead. Which, <laughs> I, you know, God bless. Um, does she have a giant birthmark on her forehead? Yeah. Is, does she have it's it like under a her bangs? Usually? Level. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Because I was like, I'm yeah. not remembering seeing this at all. Well, exactly. And it does not matter because she's just blisteringly talented. So who <laughs> gives a fuck? She could have an extra arm coming out of her face. And I would be like, yes, queen, iconic, do a manicure, like whatever. I like that um, this is all like a very subtle like backdoor slam on Gorbachev. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if there's somebody you can punch down on, maybe Gorbachev. Uh, yeah, I'll take anyway. that. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I've been watching Killing Eve. I love it. It's sexy. It's funny. It's fun. Sandra Oh, yes, love it. Love the other actress in it, whose name I do not know. Yeah, and then I'm reading a sci-fi book by a Bay Area author uh, called. Annalie knew it. It's called The Future from Another Timeline. And so far, it's very fun. And I met them at an event, and they were so sweet and so nice. And so I'm so happy to finally get around to reading their book. And it's great. Thank you for bringing that up, because I've been meeting to add it to my list and have not. So I'm mm. going to put it on my Audible to to read list, which is growing rapidly, Gorgeous. believe it or not. Um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna do another yeah. deep dive into some Ursula K. Le Guin, um, The Laugh of Heaven. Oof. I'm gonna take that plunge. Oof. I've got like nice. all of Octavia Butler's uh, Pattern Maker series. I've had it on there for a while, Ooh. but I'm kind of like. I try to kind of ration out my Octavia Butler since we're not going to get any more. <laughs> um, I'm like, I don't want mm-hmm. it to be over. I'm trying to think if there's anything else fun. Oh, I watched the new Emma adaptation, which was a lot of fun. I've been using this thing called like uh, Watch Together, which we actually use today to watch the Margaret Atwood mm-hmm. documentary, which spoiler alert is what we're going to talk about. And so I've been watching things with other people. And what I loved about the new Emma adaptation was that it was just so clearly from the female gaze. I don't think apart from Clueless, which is still my favorite adaptation of Emma, like don't at me. It's so good. It's better than the source material. Like it's amazing. But like it was so female gazy. The whole thing was just like this beautiful pastel pink explosion. My only complaint is that I did not think Mm. the man meat, was up to the standard of the feb meat um, in that movie. So, but you know, my colleague disagreed with me. She thought the guys were all really hot. You know, we're both bisexual. So I felt like we were on like an equal playing field of like evaluating these things. I'll let you know. Yeah. Please let me know what you think of, of the meat. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, the meat. <laughs> um, no. And it, it stars um, okay. Anya, joy taylor taylor joy i can never remember what order british people with a hyphenated name come in um but the star of the star of the vv itch which i am not going to do a scary black philip voice um because you're having a hard time thank you you're welcome look thank you i appreciate it reality is scary Um, enough i don't need to tease you thank you babe i appreciate it um (laughs) okay so i guess before before we get into this, we are going to cover uh, Margaret Atwood colon a word after a word after a word is power. Um, before we get into this, you know, redheads, don't get super excited. <laughs> this is kind of a, a one time deal. Unless we're stuck inside forever, ever, then we'll see. But yeah, like, then we'll don't, see. Uh, I mean, this doesn't know. mean which doesn't mean we're going to cover season four or any of the other banillion things you keep uh, asking us to cover. Uh, so don't get too excited. This is just a little. Uh, stay inside treat uh from us to you because we miss you and we love you and we love each other yes and it's a hard time we need we need to have our community in this time totally so uh we'll be doing stuff this week maybe on the facebook page but um you get what you get and you don't throw a fit okay (laughs) i don't know why i'm lecturing you guys you're the best uh it's Um, because i'm the fun dad I'm like, yeah, hey guys, exactly. who knows? Uh, you know what? Let's all have um, hamburgers, hamburgers for breakfast today. <laughs> <laughs> all right, shall we dive in? This is the Hulu documentary Margaret Atwood. A word after a word after a word is power. So, did you even know this was happening? Because it dropped on my Hulu screen, and I was like, Zul? I love a surprise documentary. <laughs> I also love a surprise documentary. I, I don't remember if I knew about this organically or because people kept, you know, emailing me or mm-hmm. tweeting me about it. But I, I was aware of its existence. I don't know that I would have just watched it by myself because I do have to watch all of Cheers over again. Um, 
and also like Francis Ha for the 15th time. But yeah, I'm glad I watched it. Ah, uh, yes. Cheers. The uh, the Mad Adam trilogy of the United States. Che- I don't know if it's just me. Cheers is so fucking sexual to me right now. I just I cannot <laughs> even. And you are right in saying it was beforehand, but I'm watching like the tail end of season one and I'm just like completely sopping wet every single episode. <laughs> So, wait, so if you, you want to, are you a are you a Diane Stan or a Rebecca Stan? Okay, I dislike both women. Fantastic! Oh, <laughs> but you want to be you want to be with Sam alone apologist slash. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'm actually I don't like Rebecca, so I think Rebecca is worse than Diane ever was. So might as and I think he should have ended up with uh, Diane. So I guess I'll be a Diane fan anyway. And the writing is so good. Fun facts about me. Number one, have never watched Cheers. Number two, I don't rewatch sitcoms. I used to when I was married. And for whatever reason, like now as a single person, like once I've watched something, I just like I'm like done. You know, I'm not going to go back to it because I've been hearing so much from friends. They're like, oh, I'm just going back to this like comforting thing that I watched so many times. And like, and I'll reread a book, I'll rewatch a movie, but for some reason with TV shows, I will say I am doing a rewatch of Babylon Berlin, but I'm trying to write a series of essays about it. So like, that's more like work than feeling like, oh, what do I find comforting this searing portrait of uh, (laughs) criminality in Weimar, Germany? Absolutely. Well, said it before, say it again. You're a weird bird, Kelly Anakin. You're a real (laughs) weird bird. (laughs) Um, So this movie was made this year. I did not write down anything about who made it, uh, but I know that the title derives from Maggie Att's uh, 2003 poem called Spelling Poem. So just FYF for your information. (laughs) For your foreknowledge. Yeah, which actually um, they didn't they didn't reference it or go through it at all, um, which kind of surprised me after the fact. But there were so many other like juicy goodies in here i totally didn't miss it yeah me neither and i have to say just going into this doc it's such good asmr like (laughs) from the typing sound to the rain sound to like the sweet voice of maggie like it is so good um really soothing my first note here uh i think is very important i just wrote young maggie atts can't get it what a babe get it's what oh ba- I mean God. look the she's outfits. she's still a babe I'm not trying to be ageist but holy Truth. shit young Maggie Atts like yeah I was a puddle just watching her be young and awesome yeah I really would like some prints of like old like 60s era Maggie Atts with her like Velma glasses and her mm-hmm. fishnet stockings and like she's a babe honestly and her goddamn hush puppies Oh my god. Okay, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, I loved so in in this first bit here, you had this sort of um pastiche of of people talking about her. And I don't know who said this, but I loved whoever said that and I'm paraphrasing because I didn't quite transcribe it a hundred percent. So please again, don't at me. Um unless it's just to say hi. But talking about how Margaret Atwood writes for her times of her times, but also writes for all time. 
that just floored me and i felt like it really set the tone for what the documentary set out to do which i i feel like from my perspective and maybe you have a differing opinion but it was sort of like this overview of her life but then also it gave you this nice uh window into some of her most popular works um, namely, uh, The Handmaid's Tale and Alias Grace, which makes sense since both of those are things that have been adapted and probably, you know, are, are more popular because they didn't go really into much around The Blind Assassin. There was a little nod to Cat's Eye. <laughs> Would you drop your earbud into yeah, my, your cleavage? Yeah, look, my earbud fell into my cleavage earlier. I dropped chicken noodle soup down my cleavage. It's been a really... <laughs> Exciting day for these titties. <laughs> um, yeah, and so the documentary is is telling all those stories, but through the lens of like her last big tour with her husband. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! And this is, I know, Which, I sobbed. Yeah, sob city. Um, but through sort a documentary of documentary like, uh, that'll get you wet from head to toe. <laughs> Is a pull quote no one will ever use for anything. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, it's told sort of like through the last tour that they do together, but it's also to set it in the timeline. It's right before Testaments comes mm-hmm. out. So they dance around the release of Testaments. Uh, and but then don't, the creative uh, team read it and they were like, you know, what? we're not going to talk about this. We're going to sh- stop right here. <laughs> we're just going to stop. Let's let's go out on a high note, Maggie. So I got to say, the first thing that destroyed me about this movie is uh, how she has been carrying her purse on stage. She will continue carrying her purse on stage. She will never not carry her purse on stage. And just, I love it. You love like, to see a, it. Like, A, people be thieving. And B, what if, she, what if she needs some, like, wet wipes or chapstick? Like, <laughs> honestly, I lose my shit if I don't have chapstick. It's so funny because sometimes it's an increasingly bigger purse. Like, there's one time when she's bringing, like, it looks to me like an ice chest. Like an igloo <laughs> ice chest. It's like, damn, Maggie, you're bringing some brewskis on yeah, stage? Yeah, like, you're, you're probably damn. too young to remember, but that was huge in 1988. <laughs> oh, People man. just, like, put their but, babies in there, too. Good thinking, Lincoln. So <laughs> let that be a lesson to you, redheads. Keep your eyes on your purse at all times. I also loved, again, I want to say this was maybe the governor of Canada who said this, was talking about mm-hmm. the Kurosawa quote which was much longer than this, but what really stuck out to me, especially in quote unquote, these uncertain times drink, the artist Uh never averts his eyes. And I've been, I've been personally having this very existential tug of war about like, so am I supposed to be like creating right now? What am I, what is my responsibility as, you know, not exactly like a successful artist that anybody like gives a shit about, like no shade to us in this podcast. Like, I think I've had a lot of success compared to like whatever I could have imagined, like as a child, like, wow, you know, I make a podcast. What the fuck is that? Um, But it's just like, you know, uh, just thinking about like, is the act of observing enough for the artist right now? Um, But I mean, you know, but we are like, we are creating, like you and I made the decision. We were like, well, this sucks. In response, we choose to make this piece of art. 
And I just, I love that so much. And just the idea of never looking away, it reminds me so much of uh, a tarot card, the Nine of Swords, um, specifically Uh in my Vertigo comics deck, which I absolutely love um, because it's all, the artwork is all done by Dave McKeon. If you're familiar with Vertigo Comics and the Sandman and Neil Gaiman, like, you know what all this is. If not, uh, you probably have a lot of time on your hands. You can check it out. But it is just an eye and there are nine sharp swords just pointed at it, like, just, just before the point of, like, piercing the eye, basically. Um, And it's very photorealistic. It's very scary. I don't love it when I pull it, when I'm doing a tarot reading for myself. But it is the the interpretation is like being unflinching in the face of danger and refusing to look away and i think mm. that it's so much about we learn from danger and we learn from these sometimes terrifying experiences and i mean i think you see that woven yeah. all through margaret atwood's work yeah it reminds me of the quote that she says a little later you know when the journalist is asking do don't you think your work is cruel and she's like well yeah life is cruel <laughs> you know well, and I, I loved that. And it actually, that, that inspired me. Um, I have this book that I have read, like, four of the essays in called The Theater of Cruelty by Ian Barama. And when I was, mm. when I was but a wee dark and complicated lass <laughs> in my, uh, in my theater classes in high school, I got very into like Antonin Artaud and the theater of the absurd. To me, actually, this is actually a kind of an interesting seg because it goes back to the idea of like the artist is never looking away and to me that's what's at the heart of both theater of the absurd and theater of cruelty um and to a certain degree as well like the theater of oppression um which of course was championed by augusto boal um of course huh yeah we all know that (laughs) if you watch tentified yes you do know that um (laughs) sorry what season of cheers is that I don't really, mm, you know, I, I, I quit watching after um, uh, Rebecca came in. So, or wait, is that just Veronica's closet? <laughs> <laughs> That's the sound of that going over my head. How do you know about Cheers and you don't know about Veronica's closet starring Kirstie Alley? No, sorry. I'm only familiar with Toothless. <laughs> it's a great movie. It really inspired me because I love it when women are cruel in their art. Mm-hmm. I love art that is unflinching. Again, maybe not the greatest coping strategy right now, but it was like, oh, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, these are some texts that I can go back to because I feel like right now I'm going through this sort of artistic self-evaluation and kind of looking at like, okay, well, how mm-hmm. is art showing up in my life in terms of like what I'm making and what I'm consuming you know, because there's nothing else going on right now, I can think about this kind of both like very intensely, but also in a very diffuse way where it's just like, oh, like there's no pressure, but I can apply pressure if I want to. Anyway, I'm going through something and I appreciated Margaret Atwood's comments about cruelty because it reminded me of my North Star of cruel art. Yeah, I, I think all of that is really interesting. And I think that sort of being observant and aware reminds me of the notion uh, in The Handmaid's Tale that, like, ignoring and ignorance are not the same thing. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. You know, so uh, Maggie Etz wants you to take away, stay woke, pay attention, and that extends to taking your purse with you (laughs) when you go on stage. Speaking of her clothes, 
Can we talk about her, like, mm. adorable little, like, tourist outfit as she's coming out of the hotel? Like, that's basically what I look like at all times. Right now I'm wearing, like, a beanie. <laughs> I just, nothing matches. I'm just like, what? <laughs> I love when she goes, look, I'm coming out of a hotel. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Get it? I'm poking fun at being part of this documentary about myself. Oh, Get it? But I... <laughs> I agree with you that her clothes are so great this whole time. She is like a parka goals over and over and over again. Well, and I love so cute. the detail that we learn. We're, we're very nearly to sort of like the biographical piece of this, but where she was studying home economics because she felt like that was going to be the most lucrative career path for her. And so she started mm-hmm. sewing her own clothes but they like they would look great on the outside, but on the inside, they would just like be about to fall apart. And like that's totally me sewing anything. <laughs> like if you if you look on the underside, you're like, what happened here? Like, <laughs> oh that's my actually God. a great uh, sort of pivot here. So let's get into the the um, sort of biographical part of this. And she is like, I love so much about. Margaret Atwood is like how much she is not having like traditional documentary stuff. Like she just She's has no patience so for it. so sassy because I love it. they bring up, you know, that she was born in Ottawa and it was very snowy and she was like, let's not do the psychological deep dive. We're not going to do that. Ooh. I know you could hear the air horn going off, <laughs> by the way. Regret to inform everyone that my go-to air horn app is no longer a thing. So I'm in the market for a new air horn app. <laughs> if you want to make uh, recommendations, you can find Molly on Twitter at Serious Molly. <laughs> and if you want to just talk to Kelly about anything, she's at Kelly Anakin on Twitter. Um, <laughs> they give us this shading of her background as this like little girl that lives in the woods with her family. Her dad is a I hope I'm saying this right. It's the bug one. It's an etymologist. Right? I uh, always get the that one and the word one mixed up. Yeah. Uh, hey, whatever. Hey, hey, Molly. A bug <laughs> after a bug after a bug <laughs> is power. <laughs> get it? It's the title of my documentary, but about No, bugs. no, no. I, yeah. I I get it for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I loved seeing her baby pictures because even as a baby, she was yes. so sardonic. Yes. And her her daughter is also a sardonic baby. And then her grandson yeah. is a sardonic baby. Just I know. sardonic all the way down. Well, she's so cute because she's got this like wild ringletty hair uh, as a little baby and her and her brother are like they said they're like literally living in a tent while their dad builds them this like log cabin to live in big in the wilds of Ingles Canada. energy papa atwood i know totally and there's like they would take him out of school for months at a time just to like be in the woods i guess well um, i mean because their dad was an entomo- etymologist he was a bug man <laughs> It would be so easy to look this up. (laughs) It would be so easy. Um, And yet we refuse. I did love, I I loved that her college roommate, when they hook up later, was like, oh, yeah, like, I meant to, like, look at the book, and then, like, I just didn't. And I was like, yes, vindicated. (laughs) Oh, jeez. 
So, yeah, they just like live in the woods. They have a great time. They're learning stuff. They don't have a radio. They don't have a TV. They're just popping around. This is the bit where it was like kind of like intercut with her being at this conference in Amsterdam where she was like pretending to be an alien. I thought that was really cool. I I loved it because I was also like, I feel like she wrote this like 10 minutes before she had to go on stage. Yeah, I think it came out good. No, it came out. I mean, look, you're Margaret Atwood. Like, you know, you can just come up with something 10 minutes before. But it was just like, she was like, oh, oh, you know, I forgot. I was busy. I had to sew a fanny pack. Uh, I don't know how this came into it, but at one point they're intercutting this speech that she gives with all of the different Margaret Atwood cosplays that she does, which is more than I thought there would be. Uh, I <laughs> she's just wrote, as a LOL, what is this slideshow? Like, <laughs> I'm enamored of it. And she does it later. And it like really drives home the point for me that like at her core, Margaret Atwood is a like weird art girl and she was born a weird art girl. She'll die a weird art girl. Like her best friend is like a gay painter. You know, she was like going to coffee shops like she's wherever she is that girl, whatever corner of Canada she decides to haunt in her death. She will be a weird art ghost. You know, she has done like some massage trains at various art camps. Like she just gives off that vibe. And I actually didn't know that she was a painter. And, you know, because she talks about she humble brags about writing her first novel at the age of seven. And I'm like, OK, thank oh, I thought you. that was so funny. I was like, she goes, it, it wasn't that big of a success. Like, <laughs> Measuring well, that. and it was because she talked about it when I went to the event with her in 2018, 2019, whatever. What year is it now? Honestly, I think it, it was about ants. So they kind of showed like the the like wide rule paper with like about like the ants and like what they were doing that mm-hmm. day. And that was her first novel. And then mm-hmm. at some point she became a painter, which made a lot of sense because if you read Cat's Eye, the main character is a successful painter. She's a painter kind of at the level that Margaret Atwood is a writer. Um, so it's not just the thing where writers are like, hmm, what's an analog to being a writer so that like mm-hmm. it's not obviously me, but like kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So just like I think the two core things to look at Margaret Atwood through is that she is a weird art kid and a weird like feral in the woods kid and both of those things coalesce to give us her sort of gorgeous descriptions of you know flowers and plants and also like an awareness of like metropolitan culture and art at the same time the thing that kept coming into my head the phrase that kept coming to me really anytime they kind of showed her like very strange photos like this slideshow and then there's some other images that are really striking later but I just kept thinking about um, Year of the Flood and Toby the Dry Witch. And I feel <laughs> so strongly that Margaret Atwood is a dry witch. I still don't oh, yeah, really totally. know what the difference is between a dry witch and a wet witch, apart from the kids thought that a wet witch was um, a slut in Year of the Flood. <laughs> but because uh, I'm yeah. sure Margaret Atwood can like get out and hoe with the best of us yes oh god look at those some of those old pictures like right? you know it she was a you fucking mix. know it 
I think in the like biopic of her, uh, I think like Thora Birch should play her as a as a young girl because she's got this very like nerdy, arty like hotness to her. Is Thora Birch who I mean? Maybe not. And uh, I, d- I, don't I don't know. know. I could great, see actually even now I could see I could see Julia Stiles playing her. Um, oh, me too. Her, like, like okay. Here's here's the pitch. It's 1984. Okay. Graham Gibson and Margaret Atwood have moved to West Berlin, and she's writing The Handmaid's yes. Tale. That's the bio. Oh, fuck yeah. biopic. Hey, Hollywood. I know biopic? you're. I know you're kind of on pause right now. Get at me. <laughs> Get Margaret <laughs> Atwood me. Yeah. <laughs> Might be, by the way, s- sidebar, my dad called me the other day and we're chatting and he goes, man, you know who is like one of my favorite sci-fi authors? Have you ever heard of Margaret Atwater? <laughs> and I was like, huh, I don't really know. He goes, she wrote books. She wrote a book I really like called Cathead. <laughs> I don't I don't think she did. He goes, no, no, no. I love this book, Cathead. You should give it a, a read. <laughs> uh, like he, I know Margaret Atwood. I have thousands of hours of recorded opinions about her. Could that be what you mean? You're like, maybe? I am so slain. Blessed. Like Shakespearean yeah. style slain over here. Oh my god. Yeah. That's so great. Uh so if you if you also like Margaret Atwater, give us a call. Um <laughs> Can't we can't <laughs> wait to try out Cathead. Cathead. <laughs> um I also like that. How many of her sixty books do you think you've read? Very few. How have I yeah. never read Surfacing? Because when they were know, talking I've about Surfacing and like showing like the movie with its very hot Canadian leads, I was just like, and like the pull quote is like, "Oh, it's better than the Bell Jar," and I'm like, "But the the Bell Jar is my favorite book. How have I never Ooh. read this book?" I also found it so condescending when the cover art for surfacing says, uh, let me see what it says. It says something like the most, oh, the most shattering novel dot, 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 a woman ever wrote. <laughs> like, fuck you. The, fuck you. The seventies. Like, wow. That's a real slam on George Eliot. <laughs> no love for Silas Marner. What? <laughs> So they talk about she, you know, goes to college because she thinks, of, oh, I love when she says, you know, there's only X amount of careers available to women when I was growing up. And so she says something to the extent of, I guess I'll learn how to be an English teacher before I fall off a cliff. Well, <laughs> like, because damn. she was talking about, you know, going for somebody's birthday the parents were like, oh, let's take him to go see The Red Shoes, which is a movie I've never seen. But then mm-hmm. I get the gist of it from... Me neither. ...from this documentary. It's like, oh, this ballerina who has to like choose between her career and her husband. And so at the end, she chooses jumping mm-hmm. off of a building. And I was like, I liked The Red Shoes better when it was called Black Swan. Um, <laughs> uh, and so it's... But I mean, again, <laughs> I don't know why I was just like... You just had to take... A self laugh break <laughs> for your own joke. No, no, no. I was just uh, pretending to be Pee Wee Herman. I don't know why. That's oh. just what's happening. Molly, Pee Wee Herman right. was a guy who came out of the ground. I know who Pee Wee Herman was. <laughs> He's like 
honestly foundational comedy for me. So why don't you fucking check yourself before you wreck yourself over as there, Pee-wee Herman, or as that guy in Mystery Men, <laughs> or as a guy who was unfairly maligned for jerking off in a dirty movie theater. So unfairly maligned. You're so like allowed maligned. to jerk off <laughs> in a movie like, theater. Okay, That's what they're there here's for. Places you're allowed to jerk off: your bed, the bathroom. <laughs> no. A porno theater. Like, those are the big three. Like, it's for that, America, you puritanical fucks. Justice for Pee-wee. No, I knew. I knew fucking Pee-wee's big adventure. Get off my dick. Oh, my gosh. Um, Oh, mercy. God, where the fuck were we? We weren't. Okay, let's try to go back. Uh, Pee-wee Herman. Uh, I laughed at a joke that I said. Black Swan. Black Hmm? Swan, Red Shoes. Black Swan, Red Shoes. Black Swan, Red Shoes is the last thing I remember as well. Uh (laughs) Okay, you were trying to get to what I was saying, which is she knew there were only five careers a woman could have so she went to college to do one of them and i love this stock footage of this like very (laughs) attentive stewardess who honestly looked to me like she was trying to like give somebody a blowy like she just leaned in like so far to get this guy's seatbelt on i was like Mm -hmm. whoa patty calm down (laughs) it's the 50s no that was like the thing coffee tea or me sir yeah, so she goes to a Canadian college. She meets this dude, James Polk, who is like her cute college boyfriend. And also was her um, first husband. Spoiler, yeah. Um, and then she goes to, I believe, grad school at Radcliffe, which is near Harvard? So or Radcliffe like the sister at the school? time was the women's college associated with Harvard in the same way that Smith was okay. the women's college associated with Yale. I think I'm basing all of this on the bell jar. Don't at me. (laughs) No, you know more than I did. And I went to SF State. No, and I actually, Uh, at no point in the hundreds of hours we have spent doing this podcast, did I realize that Margaret Atwood had gone to Radcliffe and like, that is why The Handmaid's Tale is set in Cambridge in Boston. I know. I'm sure we talked about it. I have literally just been, you know, wandering the streets occasionally thinking about the handmaid's tale and just being like i wonder why she said it at harvard do, 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 do. i'm gonna buy a burrito like doing no no leg work whatsoever i'm just like i guess she was there one time or something yeah because this this she says explicitly in this that handmaid's tale is based on she she says it's like a dunk on the harvard english department which is hilarious um, and like yeah i love how specific that is and i love finding mm-hmm. out that great art at its base is so fundamentally petty like oh it's so petty i just i love it so much it's like okay so like i found out um kind of in the wake of the like whole like gal gadot like imagine video that went around somebody was posting all of these like hot takes that elton john had when john lennon wrote that song because he was like he thought it was so funny because at the time john lennon and yoko ono were living at the dakota um incidentally that's where rosemary's baby was filmed and also where stacy mcgill's best friend lane lived in the babysitter's club books um uh, point of order it's the lakota with an l i believe it is the dakota with a d it's Our- the fuck with a f <laughs> it's definitely the dakota 
I recently saw it in okay. print. It's with a D. Okay. I mean, do Pardon you want to break our moratorium on doing research? We could sell this right now. No. <laughs> no. Pardon me. Anyway. It's so so, they it's had- so terribly unimportant. John Lennon and Yoko Ono had like six apartments full of like art and all of their possessions. So Elton John like rewrote the lyrics to be imagine six apartments. Um, and he also one time gave John Lennon and Yoko Ono a cuckoo clock where a penis popped out every hour on the hour. <laughs> this has been Elton your John, random you Elton John dog. gay fact of the day. <laughs> Gotta say, sidebar, that movie Rocket Man, good movie. You should see it. I appreciate what you're saying, though, about we were talking about how art is so petty. And I really appreciate that. And it's fun to know that context, specifically because she said sort of the inciting incident of this is that there's this Lamont library in Harvard at the time that women couldn't go into. And she wanted to go in there because she really wanted to take her time and browse the modern poetry section. And she wasn't allowed to. Well, and I mean, so this, was, cool. this was the time of, you know, confessional poetry. So this is when like your Ted Hughes's and Sylvia Plath's and Ann Sexton's Ugh. and then that Yay. guy. Who the fuck is that guy? Robert Lowell. <laughs> um, <laughs> his name is Robert Lowell. Um, you know, there was all of this really wrenching poetry happening after poetry you know what i don't i don't know enough about poetry to be talking up my ass like this but for poems to be explicitly rooted in the person's life in a way where there was not this sort of like veiling going on where it was just being very clear like hey i have big daddy issues and my daddy liked bees boom that's sylvia plath in a nutshell <laughs> And just to be clear, I'm not being dismissive about like, quote unquote, daddy issues, because belittling daddy issues is part of the patriarchy. <laughs> this is a delay. Um. <laughs> anyway, but so there's there's this tremendous excitement around poetry because it's post-World War II. Everybody has a lot of feelings because they've all just lived through this horrific global experience, which I'm sure none of us can relate to at this moment in time. <laughs> No, actually, honestly, if you're if you're curious, I, I keep coming back to this. I just recommended it to somebody else today. This is very out of left field, but Simone de Beauvoir wrote a Roman Clef about her life with Sartre and Camus and other like uh, luminaries of the French existentialist scene called the Mandarins. And it's it's sort of like it picks up on VE Day um, and goes past VJ Day. And it's very strange because it's like mm. these people processing in real time the horrors of World War II. Um, also, I discovered that it is the source of the quote I have tattooed on my foot, uh, which I did not know when I got the tattoo. So that was a real dunk on me from beyond the grave, Simone de Beauvoir, because it was a quote from a guy in the novel that she did not care for. <laughs> Oh no! Oops. I mean, I st- I still really like it. It's the the guy. There's this whole like philosophical movement in the book about basically saying that it's good that we have horrific catastrophes because otherwise we wouldn't have art. Because um, mm. the quote translates to "art is an attempt to integrate evil," which, as an atheist, I love. It's for me like the most spiritual organizing principle that I have. It's like for me, art is like a religion. Like whether I'm creating mm. it or consuming it, it is the way that I deal with the fact of bad things. 
um, mm. versus this very opportunity. Like it's very opportunistic in the book. It's just kind of a way for these people to sort of like capitalize on the horrors of war by claiming that it's this very cathartic thing. Anyway, um, the Mandarins by Simone de Beauvoir, it's very thick. It took me a really long time to get through because it's very dense and the copy I had had very small print, but I really enjoyed it. That's cool because I do think that M- Margaret Atwood is, is interested in that too, in like how much can art reflect us back in a way that is productive is the wrong word for it, but in like a way that helps move us is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, art art is such an important thing for moving us through and beyond our worst impulses as human beings. And I think mm-hmm. that because of what's happening right now with this pandemic, I mean, I think we've been seeing a lot of the best and the worst of humanity butting right up against each other. And yeah. I, I think art is so important to that kind of tug of war and, and hopefully moving us in a more um, compassionate direction. Actually, Margaret Atwood mm-hmm. deals with this a lot in the book Oryx and Crake when she talks about mm-hmm. the game um, Blood and Roses, um, where basically mm-hmm. it's a game where you trade works of art for atrocities. I can't remember how the scoring works, Ooh. but like basically like you're pitting, you're, you're basically making the call in a game. Like is the Mona Lisa worth the Armenian genocide. Like, Whoa. it's crazy. And that's just like a footnote in the book. That's not even like the crux of the the books grappling with good and evil. And um, I've seen the Mona Lisa IRL, and I'll tell you right now, no. So, <laughs> controversially, I'm going to say no. Um, <laughs> I love it. All, the entirety of Cheers, yes, absolutely. <laughs> One Without I, flinching, I would say. I would genuinely love to play Molly Sanchez's Blood and Roses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, no shade on the Mona Lisa. It's just tiny and uh, it's not as impressive as you think it's going to be. Anyway. Um, um, I, I Anyway, to, just to tie up that ramble that I just had, I think that what you see often in like dictatorships and other, you know, restrictive forms of government, and this is something that Margaret Atwood engages with constantly, is like, in order to keep people trapped in their own worst impulses, what do you do? You defund the arts. You make the arts inaccessible to people. You take away this tool for Mm -hmm. us to find our commonalities and make us focus on our differences. This is, you are just teeing me up to spike it over the net here, Kelly, uh, because that reminds me of the camp song that she sang with her gay bestie, who is Chuck Patchter. Uh, they went to camp together, and she is shown in this dock as going to his wedding. And she has a very relatable experience that I think a lot of us have had when your partner meets an old friend and they immediately go into something and you're just like okay because his like, oh, fiance is like no you've gotten into the wayback machine i'm gonna go yeah. get a cocktail <laughs> maybe when i return you will be inhabiting my reality again because uh charles's fiance is watching as he and, and maggie are singing this song about this camp song about if you put your finger on the map no matter where you put it you're gonna find somebody who has the same blood type as you and it's meant to be a humanist song of like, we're more alike than we're different. So that mm-hmm. really coincides well with what you just said. Um, Do you and know your this- blood type? I don't know my blood type. Like every time <sighs> I find it, I forget it. I think maybe it's AB negative. 
Maybe. I have 0.00 idea, uh, but I am donating blood soon, so I'll let you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I want to donate blood for, you know, like the pandemic war effort, but also just to know what the fuck my blood type is. Yeah, so I'll let you know. I don't know. know. It just seems like I should know that. Uh, so just the only thing I have to say about this section, uh, about her friendship with that artist is I would really love a print of some of the paintings that he's done of her because they're beautiful. His paintings are so beautiful. Do you mind if I take a moment just to like shout out some of my gay besties right now? Because a gay bestie loves a Scorpio. Like, honestly, it's such a great time. So just want to shout out Levi Hastings from Seattle. I see you, girl. I love you. Your artwork is amazing. John Russell of New York City. Oh, my God. Yes, John. You do amazing interviews and your critical eye is mwah. that's a chef's kiss. You can't see it, but you hear it. Also, shout out to longtime podcast listener Dante Pereira. Hopefully I'm saying your name right, but I love your uh, entire Twitter presence. I'm like blanking on which starlet is your like fan account i will look it up and feel like an idiot later you are amazing love you all thank you for keeping me sane right now oh uh okay i'll shout out my (laughs) this feels so problematic and also very fun um uh, shout out Baruch Porras Hernandez, yes! who is simultaneously my friend and also my dad, and also a <laughs> great artist in the Bay Area. Um, we really confuse a lot of people because I call him my dad on a lot of things because he looks like he could be my dad. And everybody's like, wow, your dad's so prolific and gay. It's like, LOL, <laughs> no, he thinks Margaret Atwater is a thing. But my pretend art dad is Baruch. I um, I want to watch you two do a play where you play father and daughter now. Like, I am obsessed with oh, this idea. I would do that anytime. Uh, I would also read also a children's sh- book about this. I just, I, I want, I want Baruch and Molly content. And then shout out to Dom Jelen, who is a longtime buddy of mine and who will watch uh, Fast and the Furious 1 with me later this week. Uh, I guess I have more, but it uh, feels weird to commodify them in this way. No, I feel uh, weird because I didn't say any lesbians, but you know what? I'm going to stand by <laughs> it. <laughs> the, the erasure. The sheer erasure. Um, anyway, so let's get back to now we're sort of getting into Margaret. Also, I will never, ever call her Peggy unless she asks me to. But how cute is it that that's what her friends call Just, her? She's been Peggy forever. Oh, kills me. I love it. So the part that I want to talk about is sort of her burgeoning writing career. So where she gets she wins this uh, award sort of before she's even out of grad school. And then she's sending manuscripts around. I believe the manuscript is The Edible Woman, I think. Uh, And she's sending it out to all these people and she's dealing with this fuckery of like publishing companies being like, oh, my God, we lost it. Oh, my God. My secretary was pregnant. And you know how bitches be. She lost it. Send it to me again. I do know how bitches be. They be pregnant. Bitches be pregnant. Because there's no common sense contraception available. (laughs) So she talks about sort of this rigmarole of trying to find a publisher. And she eventually does. And they publish Edible Women. Edible Woman, which is a book that I've started reading a couple of times and never finished. No shade. I just uh, other things. I have to watch Cheers some more. So then she meets Phoebe, who's last Phoebe Lamore, who's been her agent for 50 years. And And I think it was uh, her who had I think it was her who had one of my favorite lines in the documentary. She talks about how 
she lived between the lines of what Margaret Atwood wrote. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that so much. I really connected with it. Um, oh, it just, yeah. there's something so visceral about that to me. And it's so how I experience literature that I love. Um, yeah, the end. <laughs> oh, I agree with you. And I have felt that really strongly in her work specifically. So it's really nice to hear that reflected back and that she stayed with the same, you know, agent for so long, I think is a good testament to uh, her connection. Good night, Um, everybody. I'm out of here. I also (laughs) knew you would love that Maggie's first question as a Scorpio to this agent is what's your sign? I absolutely Uh, uh, made a note. Um, Oh, fuck. They um, this is actually, I think, in the lead up to the the section about cruelty, which we don't have to talk about because we already talked about it. But that poem that I forget the name of. We've talked about it before, the one about like the hook in the eye. Um, Yeah. Oh, God, it's so beautiful. The line, please die, I said, so I can write about it. Yeah. In her book, Power Struggle. I related to that so hard. And this is why I will probably be single for quite a while. (laughs) I know. I was also. It's like, baby, haven't done anything dramatic for me lately. So I'm just going to like go. I'm just going to like go. I know. I was uh, a little in my feelings about that as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think think any artist is. Because if you are somebody who minds your personal experience for your art, Mm -hmm. You're, you're gonna feel mm-hmm. that you're like uh why isn't my life interesting if my life was interesting then i could make meaningful art yeah and sorry i want to correct myself from before it's called power politics uh Ooh, that's even better that, that quote comes from that i really want to read now but anyway the thing that- brb getting that tattooed on my back a la pam from archer with paradise lost so the thing i was like oh about is when they play a clip from her being interviewed by this lovely voiced man and then they attribute who it is and it's graham gibson 1972 and if you know your maggie atwood history that's gonna be her boyfriend for the rest of her life i was like full-on flirting i was like rot row i know because she's still married they're both still married like i was a dum-dum Somehow, I thought Jim Polk was Graham. It mm-hmm. makes me like their partnership almost more to know that, like, they were each other's, like, other woman, so to speak. Um, oh, yeah. I feel Hi. like, you know, that's that's going to be controversial in certain circles. But no, and actually, it makes sense to me as somebody who's been married and now divorced. Like, <laughs> it just makes sense to me why you would, like, not ever get married again. <laughs> like, from, like, a legal perspective. Because, like, to me, like, you know, it's just like, oh, like, what I really learned from this relationship that I had, which, you know, I still, again, consider to be a success. I'm still very close with my ex, but it's just like, oh, wow, you really don't need no piece of paper from the city hall. And if you do break up, it just makes things really hard and complicated. So anyway, I see you, Maggie Atts and Graham. I respect you. Yeah. So they talk about sort of the beginning of their courtship and he pulls a very, I mean, she approaches him to say that she loves his book, uh, which is the opposite of nagging. Take note. (laughs) Be nice. uh, is it called pausing yeah it's called pausing <laughs> it's really hard to talk about because it does sound like pausing yeah like, i'm taking like, a uh... breath but and then he she's all that's her 
because not only is he interviewing her, he's also taking pictures of her for something. And he goes like, you would look so sexy with your hair down. He doesn't say that specifically, but that's the subtext. And she she takes her hair down and he goes, that was it. It's like, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I want to take a moment here because I actually watched like the end of She's All That the other night because it was on cable. Mm. And Paul Walker smoking a cigarette and then putting it out in somebody's Diet Coke is the essence of my sexual orientation somehow. <laughs> like, I don't know why. Because I don't smoke anymore and I don't drink Diet Coke anymore. But spiritually, yes. Yes. Here for it. Um, so then... The part that I liked about this, like, honestly, everybody is dancing around the fact that we know Margaret Atwood is a freak. Like, there's no way she's not a freak. I'm sorry. Get me kicked out of literary circles, but... The Rick James song Super Freak is about her. It's about her. Disco (laughs) was king and Margaret Atwood was a freak. She was super freaky. Oh, my God. You can just tell. Um, so they keep talking about how when she and Graham are getting together, they would like, they didn't say hook up, but they didn't not say hook up in like the basement of this, uh, Anansi press books. Um, <laughs> there like one person quoted like, yeah, we knew when Graham and, uh, Margaret were down there. Uh, don't go down there. It's like, damn, hey, get uh, some Maggie Hey everyone. Uh, there's a sock on the door. Get it? We're fucking. <laughs> Graham and I are fucking. fucking. Don't Just, tell our spouses. It's going to be a horrible surprise. A horrible surprise. The Margaret Atwood story, basically. <laughs> so they sort of uh, ditch their spouses, get together. And the thing that I think is interesting sort of guiding principle for the rest of this documentary is that she and him become this sort of nurturing the arts in Canada power couple. And the point that they make is that uh, a lot of artists in Canada would get their start there and then take their art elsewhere to the States, to Europe, to wherever. And the fact that she made a point, she and Graham made a point of staying in and building that scene there is significant. And uh, that's hard for me to hear as somebody contemplating moving from one city I really love to a city I'm kind of so-so about to do art. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a little hard for me to wrestle with, but I do like it. I also had a very strong reaction to this. Um, they they had the line about Canada being a thousand miles of wheat and indifference, and <laughs> it also I was like, oh, Ohio um, yeah. is very much like that. Except we have corn mainly, yeah. And but just this section and just like this this artistic movement just made me ache for greatness. This has always been Ugh. like my dream. Whenever yeah. I go to like a visual art museum, um, f- also fun fact about me, like the place that I go to get inspired the most, which is stupid because I don't go that often, but going to an art museum is like the most inspiring thing for me. Um, it yeah. just, it fills me with so many ideas and like, I love reading about, you know, all of these movements and like who was, who was working with whom and who was beefing and how it translated into all this art. So, but again, I, as somebody who left the place of indifference to come somewhere else, you know, I mean, it's definitely, it's a challenge to create something that doesn't really exist. And I think it takes very strong people with very strong points of view to make it happen. So I think that's, what's really interesting about 
Graham Greene and Margaret Atwood and this whole crew of theirs, they were just like, they made Canada happen. It was their fetch. Yeah. And they did it. They were successful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they really did. And so they talk about how they buy this like love farm out in the woods and, uh, you know, she keeps writing, he keeps writing. It sounds awesome, to be honest. Um, and then she kind of gets more and more successful. Sorry, what did you have something to say? I just, I don't know. I don't know if I would like having a partner who is in my same field. Um, I mean, especially when it comes to comedians. Uh, I feel like <laughs> the, <laughs> the range of acceptable partners. Uh, it's just like, wow, we're both this way, huh? Um, mm-hmm. but I'm also, I'm just very competitive. So I think I wouldn't, I would have felt very threatened in either position, like whether or not I was the more successful or one or not, it just would have been strange. So anyway, um, long story short, not going to get into a long-term relationship with a comedian or a UX writer. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> and the comedians and UX writers of the world, they wept. <laughs> They wept openly and bitterly for the loss of Kelly Anakin. If you listen, you hear a bunch of laptops shutting in anger. I'm laughing because I love thinking about this actually happening so much. Of course you do. You're a Scorpio. Uh, Well, life is cruel. Get it? Yeah, I don't um I don't know where I fall in that argument. Uh I'm reserving comments. Uh but <laughs> <laughs> um so she gets more and more successful and um she talks a little bit about it might be worth talking about how she has sometimes a hard time writing men characters. This is when they're talking about surfacing mm-hmm. because she says, even when I'm writing them saying thoughts and fears that I've heard men in my life say, men will read it and think I'm attacking them, which I yeah. thought was interesting and self-aware, um, but uh, well, and you know, I, doesn't I make it less it- true. That not so much as she felt it was hard to write them, but it was hard to deal with reactions to the male characters that she writes. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I think at some point in this, she wore a sweater that I referred to as the purple people eater. Just want to uh-huh. shout out that purple sweater. Not your finest moment, Maggie. There's also a picture of her like on the farm with like, uh, wader boots, but then in a full fur coat. <laughs> it's just like, that's a that's a Weezer outfit. If there was for one. that outfit. That was like Canadian Cruella Deville energy. I loved it. <laughs> yes. Um. So then we talk. They're talking about ironically, how- Canadian Cruella Deville has a cruelty free Dalmatian coat. <laughs> God, how stoked are you for this uh, Cruella movie with Emma Stone? Um, pretty stoked because... Just in theory. Yeah, I mean, I hope that they incorporate the fact that everything she eats tastes like pepper. Um, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> read the book 101 Dalmatians, but in the book, Anita and Roger go have dinner at her house, and she also has a husband in the book. Mm-hmm. And they go, and like just everything tastes like black pepper. Like, it's amazing. Anyway. Uh, put that in the movie, Emma Stone. I know you're not in charge. 
Uh, so then they start talking about how, um, with surfacing, she's becoming more and more famous and they show a montage of her with famous people. And the biggest note I wrote was Maggie plus Dolly forever. Cause they have a picture of her with Dolly Parton, who is number one book fan in the world. Uh, so I, I thought that was fun to see her there. Um, I agree. I'm also- always pro Dolly. This is the order in which I thought those cameos were interesting. I wrote number one, Dolly Parton. Number two, Joni Mitchell. Number three, the queen. <laughs> so <laughs> shows where my priorities are. <laughs> God, I love Joni Mitchell so much. Please, um, Joni, stay inside. <laughs> I mean, I think she was even before Molly. I know she was. She's just fragile and precious and I don't want anything to happen to her. I am actually, I'm not a huge Joni Mitchell fan, but my ex-wife is, and I'm working on this bit for my stand-up about how, yeah, like, doesn't everybody's husband just sit inside and listen to Joni Mitchell and cry? (laughs) (laughs) Surprise! She's trans. Um, Um, I would love to just do a quick detour here and talk about, because it's around this section that we get Phoebe, her agent, talking about the way that steadfastly throughout her career, Maggie Atz has just rejected the label of feminism. And it's like, it's an argument that I, I understand and I appreciate. It feels very contrarian, even as it does feel like what she truly believes. I mean, and cause it's like, it's this sentiment where I'm like, you know, uh, to quote the end of cat on a hot tin roof by, uh tennessee williams wouldn't it be nice if that were true that could be the wrong quote but anyway it's just like it would be lovely if the world believed that women's experiences are human experiences and i don't know the right way to get there um i don't know that it's rejecting the label of feminist but i just i think it's very interesting i think it's it's something that i feel like it kind of helps kind of get her on the same level as some of these like cantankerous old male writers who just are fucking weird, like J.D. Salinger, who's just been inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's dead now, yeah. right? <laughs> Social distancing king, <laughs> J.D. Salinger. <laughs> Catch her in the rye in this economy? No, thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> that was my J.D. Salinger impression. Where do the ducks go when the lake is frozen? Um, I hope six feet away from other ducks, honey. Anyway. Yes, that's exactly what he sounds like. You can check the records. 100p, that's what he sounds like. I am red. <laughs> I am red from forehead to titty. Like, oh my God, that was so funny. <laughs> okay, let's put down the ducky. Um, what are your <laughs> thoughts, Molly, on her rejection of feminism? I think like her mouth is saying one thing and her actions are saying another thing, right? Because she's the lady who, yeah, <laughs> she's the lady who's like, oops, I, my friend said go for a walk with her. And then what? I was in a woman's march. Yeah. Like she has all these things and all the work she does, like she clearly believes it. I think she's not doing the cause any good by rejecting the label because it's like quibbling over semantics when it's like you fucking clearly believe this you weirdo just say it yeah um so i actually i really don't like people who quibble over that label 
and it makes me mad even though if i can see a little bit where she's coming from it just it still bugs me yeah um no i mean i'm i'm fundamentally in agreement with you i mean i respect her right to be a twat about it but (laughs) like don't be a twat i would never say twat margaret twatwood no i (laughs) no no that's on tape forever no oh my god she wow love it. how do we get back that's the cruelest she would thing not I've love ever being said. called a twat no oh my god oh uh, for the record I didn't maggie say you were being a twat for the record I molly didn't were say being that twatty. i kelly anakin said that and i have no regrets <laughs> <laughs> so There's a bunch of things in this documentary that, like, aren't significant, but are significant just because because it's Margaret Atwood. I'm trained to see, like, extra things that are not necessarily meaningful. But she's the next scene is she's cutting a quill pen with a pink knife. Like My note says laden with meaning to me. This bitch is making a quill pen. I just I couldn't (laughs) fucking believe it. And she's doing it, she's doing it to write a poem about the quill pen that she's going to write with the quill pen. I ask you, what Christopher Nolan inception hell is this? Oh my God. You love to see it. You truly love to see it. Um, And then she just casually drops. I wish the documentarian had like interrogated her about this. She goes, you know, one time I wrote with Charles Dickens's quill pen like say more say more say more about that what the fuck did she says that she had the choice between charles dickens's quill and lord byron's metal pen which obviously the correct choice charles dickens lived longer and made way more money and was less of a douche hound um and lord byron properly jerked it right before touching that pen so you don't really want to touch that time Um, every time lord byron a fuckboy for the ages i have uh, another question for you I was getting okay. very contemplative at this point in the documentary. Do you write with pen and paper ever? I was thinking about that. Um, I do. In I like to take notes on stuff, and I, you know, I take all of our podcast notes on. I'm doing the foley here, notebook pages and with pens, and I journal. But if I'm writing a sketch, I always write it on the computer, and if I'm writing a story, I always start on the computer. So. Uh, yes and no <laughs> i guess but I, I do think it's funny oh and i, I guess sometimes i write stand up in a notebook but um my friend i went to go meet my friend for a drink in the before times and uh we're both kml writers and i saw him like at the bar by himself writing in a beautiful like leather journal and i looked over his shoulder and it was literally like man farts woman says oh stinky like it was like the dumbest bullshittiest comedian stuff in the most beautiful uh bound book so leather bound farts yeah the killing my lobster story (laughs) do you i write notes like anytime i'm podcasting or like watching media generally speaking i like to take handwritten notes i'll write my set list by hand um, but generally like when I'm writing kind of like a new chunk, I do it in a very weird way that upsets people where like, I literally type out verbatim the jokes and other comedians are like, why is there so much words on your page? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. Look, why do you smell bad? Like we both have our process. <laughs> um, 
But I really actually like writing with my hand hurts my hand. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I'm very much, you know, I'm a child of the digital age. I, you know, when I jot things down, I generally jot it down in my notes app um, on my phone. And Mm -hmm. when I first started, you know, I I would do kind of a new see sort of her process. Uh, They do several excerpts of her masterclass, which I am completely sold on now by the way. I know, me too. I'm like, let's do this. But it's like, you know, more more kind of like jotting things down on scraps and the backs of envelopes and, and note paper and things like that. But again, just, you know, I, I always have my phone. I know that I can upload that to the cloud, um, hmm. the quill of our time. And <laughs> so for Ew, me, you know what? Some writer one day is going to be like, see this? This is Kelly Anakin's iPhone. I'm going to make a note on Kelly Anakin's iPhone, just like she did. Gross. <laughs> I hope I'm dead. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and I just, for me, it's so much easier to organize my thoughts with a word processor, basically. It just is. It can sometimes be as sort of disjointed as as what she's done. Although, honestly, like, I love, you know, the arrows and stuff. I've absolutely done that kind of thing. and just Me too crossing things out it might actually i'm thinking it might be an interesting exercise to just kind of be like okay here's a blank sheet of paper like yeah what what happens um where it's less like yeah. oh i'm actually like drafting but like for the brainstorming phase to have that tactile experience um yeah so it's just, yeah you know. and i really enjoyed her discussion of her uh writing process which she describes as like downhill skiing where she basically free writes for the first 50 or 60 pages and then she goes back and tries to outline from there having gotten all her yayas out in those couple of pages and she talks about Mm -hmm. the time that she did like what you're quote-unquote supposed to do when you're writing a novel which is like writing it on note cards and doing deep character studies and that just really didn't work for her so it is another i think you know, she talks about this idea of like, you should never know 100% about somebody's writing process because it influences you and it, it, you know, even if it's your own process. But I do always find it comforting to hear how many different ways there are to write something big, because it means you could never be doing it the wrong way, because a billion people you love do it a billion different ways. So. Yeah. And I just I found that this whole section just deeply comforting um Me you know too. if if the the section about like all the canadian nationalists uh writers just gave me major fomo uh i'd be like why am i not a fucking luminary uh this was <laughs> this was the most comforting where it was just like hey you know it was very like ratatouille like everyone can cook um <laughs> everyone can write a bunch of fucking nonsense on a piece of paper the other thing I found very funny in terms of like, ooh, this doesn't mean anything, but doesn't it mean something? Is she's going through her like backyard and weeding and she goes like, I would never put this in a book because weeding is not interesting. I would never say we took this weed. We took this weed. And it's like, Margaret, we have fucking read thousands of books your ass has written with intricate plant descriptions that go on for pages so don't fucking tell me you don't write about weeding but they weren't weeds were they oh my god and also like if i'm putting on my like overly analytical hat here it's like well you just told us about your writing process where you start with something big and then cut it and cut it and cut it is that not weeding? Like you, they, you do weed. You fucking weed, and you're a writer, and it gets in there. Come on. Why is a weed 
Like a writing desk. <laughs> no, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. Um, oh, Sarah Polly, we get into Alias Grace here. And mm-hmm. this was actually, I, I want to do this master class now specifically that I know she's talking about Alias Grace in it because I think right. of the paltry number of her books I've actually read, it turns out. Um, Alias Grace has so grown on me because I think it is so intricately plotted. This is, I think, where she talks about she's a Victorian. And so the idea of sort of like cutting back and forth from different perspectives is this Victorian idea and kind of connecting like episodic television all the way back to the Odyssey, which is exactly the kind of pretentious shit I love. See my Mm. earlier rant about the theater of cruelty. And uh, we get Sarah Pauly talking about the process of adapting alias grace incidentally there's a great documentary that sarah polly made about finding her biological father which is cuckoo bananas good i watched it actually i want to give a shout out to my friend in socal isa hopkins um who's a big forager and like while maggie atz was like weeding i was like oh my god this margaret atwood documentary she's like foraging in the woods um but my friend isa uh was watching it she was staying with me she was visiting me in the bay and i came home from wherever the fuck i was and she was watching this documentary and i sat down and like it was slack jaw great i just could not believe how insane it was it was like the tiger king of canada like it was just this wild (laughs) ass story um so highly recommend it to anybody who's a fan of sarah polly or uh people's biological parents also, shout out to Isa. Thanks for that uh, orange spice you gave me. It's really good. <laughs> I think that I think that's who gave me that to me, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, it, it's yeah, good. yeah. Thank you. Um, okay, then we start talking about her ooh, ooh, ooh. as oh, please. Really quick before we move on from Alias Grace, because she she does delve in because you know they got all this footage from Netflix that they wanted to use, mm-hmm. um, but she's talking about. And I think this this ties into kind of the philosophical underpinnings of why she rejects feminists or the mm-hmm. label of feminist. I, again, don't fully agree with it, but she's talking about how none of us are paragons of virtue. And I love that so much because she does not write any characters who are just good. And she mm-hmm. does not write characters who are just bad. Like even in The Handmaid's yeah. Tale, which to me, like in the book, in so many ways feels like some of her most cartoonish characters um, at first blush have all of these layers and this humanity to them. Like as horrible as the commander is his, his quirky love of, you know, the old world contraband and, you know, being able to produce lotion for this mm-hmm. person that he's coercing into the girlfriend experience. Um <laughs> You know, I just I think it's so interesting the way that she always finds that shared humanity, even in these people who are bad. Yeah, I agree. And I really liked her uh, sort of pull quote that morality is just a series of choices. Yes. Uh, which reminds me of a Dumbledore quote <laughs> that is like our our choices far more than our abilities define who we really are. So but that was cool. Um, Damn. So. 
so we we're we should maybe uh get on the downhill slope a little bit here but, yeah i mean um, i don't i don't have a ton to say about this next section okay. which is mostly about her activism where she really downplays the activism which to me feels very canadian um, i love the point where she's like i'm not an activist or i can i can speak on behalf of activists because i don't have a job it's like lol bitch, imagine please. thinking you don't have a job um I was so excited when she was like leading up in her intro and I was like, it's going to be Salman Rushdie. And it was Salman Rushdie. That was very <laughs> exciting to me. Ex Mr. Padmalakshmi in the house. Um, oh, I was going to say Bridget Jones's Salman Rushdie. <laughs> <laughs> so equally trifling. Um, anyway, I, I like the metaphor uh, of Twitter as like semaphore. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but yes. it did. I, I love the idea of Twitter as signaling. Um, yes. And I I loved her phrase when she was kind of talking about like the bathhouse raids and how no one should be the victim of institutionalized contempt, which does, Ugh. I think, for like the isms, you know, like racism, classism, um, sexism, what she's trying to do for feminist, but it doesn't quite yes. work because it's so niche in that sense. But it's just like, oh, like that that is the common thread between mm-hmm. all of these forms of oppression is contempt. Um, and I, yeah. I just really enjoyed that. And, you know, I liked this, like, rando young writer who was like, I love it when Margaret Atwood retweets me. And I'm like, who are who let you in here? Like, what? this is not adding to my experience. How dare. I liked her a lot. Lauren Euler. <laughs> I liked her. And as mad as I was that she didn't talk about something that happened last week, which is Margaret Atwood responded to me on Twitter. So <gasps> disrespectful to not talk about that on I mean, this documentary, which was made several really, months ago. But they really should have like pulled it and edited <laughs> it and then put it back out. Like, doy. That's yeah. like documentary 101. If something happens, change the documentary. <laughs> yes, but I've been trying. The, my quarantine goal is to get Maggie Atwood to notice me more. Um, and, I support uh, I'm this. succeeding. Thank you. I'm, I'm not doing badly, though I do say very lewd stuff sometimes. And uh, she responds. So or she responded one time. Where were we next? Oh, she says kind of a weird thing. Re-raising their daughter, Jess, who is so cute. But she says, like, she wanted to make sure that her husband, Graham, isn't her handmaid which I thought was weird, a weird way to say we both do stuff. Um, I thought that was weird. And then I think it's um, maybe Phoebe is talking about it and talking about how she was smart enough to pull it off. And I was like, dude, she wasn't smart enough to pull off successful co-parenting. She was wealthy and privileged enough. Like, and she she says that like she's the first to say that, too. So then I love this transition because it says, after a riotous birthday party in our backyard, the next thing we did was move to Berlin, which just like, why is nobody asking her about any of these stories? Like, you know, there's a great story about that birthday party. Like, she probably snorted a line of coke. You've never off moved of to Berlin Rushdie's. after a birthday party. It's a very, it's a very <laughs> common experience. I have not lived. No. Well, I feel like, and I feel like they kind of put that in at the beginning of her being like, let's not delve into the psychological underpinnings. I feel like she said that after every, like, m- thing that she considers to be a mundane detail. She's like, we're not going to talk about it. 
<laughs> yeah, so maybe you had to be uh, there. Yeah, you just had to be there. I can't explain it. Um, so they moved to Berlin in 1984, and they're sort of there with the end of the Berlin Wall, and that's where she starts writing The Handmaid's Tale, which, like, looking at it now is like, Adoy. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. I, I had known that, but it, like, basically, like, took until, like, these images in this documentary of, like, all of the checkpoints, where I was like, oh. Mm. Um, and I loved how she yeah. talks about starting it on a rented German typewriter, which is my new band name. Um, if you want to start Absolutely. a band with me called Rented German Typewriter, throw up a semaphore on Twitter. <laughs> um, something that kind of occurred to me, because she's talking about her influences here and in, in having read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and 1984 by George yep. Orwell and some third one that I never heard of, but was by a man. So who cares? Um <laughs> But you know, it was literally Fahrenheit 451. You weirdo. There was a fourth one after that one, but you're right about Fahrenheit 451. So Fahrenheit 451 (laughs) is the only one I ever read out of the books that she shares. But it's just like I haven't read a lot of like the quote unquote seminal sci-fi writers because they are all men. Um, And my little too seminal for your taste. Yeah, yeah. You know, look if they were ovular. I would be more interested <laughs> because I mean, like my gateway was much more through like Madeline Langle and Anne McCaffrey and these very, um, you know, kind of femme coded sci-fi writers. And because they were also heavily influenced by these other people. I mean, I did read animal farm, which I don't think quite counts as sci-fi, but it's like, I get it. George Orwell up is down. Black is white. But it's just because the influences are so prevalent in what I was reading that I have just never had any desire to go back. It's kind of how I feel about the X-Files. Like I tried to like watch the X-Files, even though I didn't watch them when they were on the first time. But everything the X-Files did has now been so tropified that it feels derivative, even though it was like the originator of a lot of these things. Yeah. Uh, I hear you, even though I did read those books. Um, but yeah, I think and you're, that's you're that's no shade on valid. anybody. Like they are they are totally awesome books. I'm sure. I just like you know I've read like no Asimov. I'm like I get robot theory. I don't need to do this. <laughs> <laughs> insert um, insert well. gif of Elwood saying what like it's hard. <laughs> uh, so from there we talk about sort of the stuff that we already know about The Handmaid's Tale, which is where she didn't put anything in that hadn't happened before. Um, It was a big, like, bombshell when it it goes off. It's like, this is like her big break internationally. Yeah, and so... um, I I liked the the detail where as she was writing it, she went to go visit Phoebe in her cottage in Santa Monica. Oh my god, Phoebe, you're literally living my best life. Um... (laughs) And, you know, Phoebe's asking, like, how's the new book? And Margaret Atwood told her it scares me. Again, that was that was another comforting thing to me. Like, I'm working on something that scares me right now. And so often I let the fear paralyze me. And this is just like, oh, no, just like write the thing. I will say this is a really affirming thing to watch if you've been feeling stymied artistically, specifically in writing. And because it's like really like, hey, you can just try it your own way. And this is how Maggie Atz did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, go for it. I loved them kind of revisiting the movie, which I had much more like warm feelings for than I remembered. Oh, I, I love it. Yeah, I I would love to revisit the movie. And I wish there was a cut with the voiceover. Um, yes. For Offred. I, I would be so interested. And it was just like, I felt, 
I remember the, the first time I saw it and even like when we watched it for the podcast, like being not a fan of the headdresses for the handmaids in that version. But I think they work and there's something really more surreal about the movie and at the same time more like banal than the TV show. I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're in two different universes and both of them have really great aspects to them. But it was just like, oh, like I just I have a lot of affection for both. I will say if you haven't watched the 1990 movie, I believe it's also on Hulu for free. It's on Hulu or Amazon for free at last uh, look. It is very good, I think. And it has a very bananas ending that is very satisfying in a different way than the show is satisfying. We are moving right along. Uh, my favorite anecdote talking about that movie is when she talks about they went to the Duke campus to film the hanging scene. And uh, as they're about to do that, there's a wedding party getting out of the church, which is like, LOL, the precedent to all of these people taking their like Handmaid's Tale baby photos and like wedding photos. It's like, oh you've been done. I just like where are the, like where are those people? Like I wish they had tracked these people down to be like, uh, what? I, I also think it's interesting to point out that like Jess, their daughter, comes along. I think I don't think that Margaret Atwood could have written The Handmaid's Tale the same way that she wrote it had she not been a mother. And so it's important to know in her personal chronology when Handmaid's Tale comes along. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Cause I think the, the, the key conflict in the handmaid's tale is so much this mother being separated from mm-hmm. her daughter. Yeah. And then they go through the other things that we know about the handmaid's tale as a book that everything in it has a historical precedent. Um, and also that the handmaid's tale is sort of what breaks her internationally as a big deal sci-fi dystopian writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this great a quote of her where she's being interviewed on like American TV and they're like Margaret Atwood how does it feel to be this internationally recognized writer with this huge book and she just goes pleasant fuck I love her so much. you very good uh, it's so Canadian and I liked I think this might have been earlier. They quote her as saying, you know, she never thought she'd be a popular writer. She just wanted to be a good writer. Um, And, you know, I'm very your favorite uh, gift. Mm -hmm. Why not both? Please have Um, some respect. My favorite (laughs) gift is Chris Jenner holding the video camera saying you're doing amazing. I know. In your top five five, favorite gifts. Why not both? Then we get to Bruce Miller talking about the TV show. Which, lol, isn't it wild that we talked to him? Oh my god! <laughs> Once it's so, so wild. We texted each other like simultaneously to be like, lol. We talked to him. Like he emailed us to be like, let me come on your little podcast, and it was so great. It was so great. I don't know how. I don't know how uh, we if that. You Margaret know? Atwood ever came on. That's the only way we can top it. Or Elizabeth Moss. <sighs> Truth. Well, you know what? You keep working okay. Maggie Atts on Twitter. Okay. Maybe we awesome. can make it happen. <laughs> like we will. Like we can't. We won't make any false promises to you. But if Margaret Atwood ever agree to talk to us, you can bet there's going to be oh, another yeah. episode. I, of Margaret Atwood could do so many things, and I would just I'd be okay with it. Like we're this is a not a bad segue, but it's to the scene that she's in in The Handmaid's Tale, and she's trying to hit Elizabeth Moss, and she does it too gently at first. I text. <laughs> I texted Kelly, I think I was like, she could slap me for sure any day. Not even in a movie, just like hit me. (laughs) 
Yeah. Slap me, dry witch mommy. I love Elizabeth Moss is so giddy. She's so giddy about Margaret Atwood. And we get this great scene of her kind of like trying and mostly succeeding to not just completely melt into a puddle in front of Margaret mm-hmm. Atwood, who's like showing her like the the key art preview for the testaments um which again they don't take the opportunity to do a deep dive yeah. into Oof. uh they get like they get maggie atts talking about like it's a more complicated structure than the first book and i'm like oh by more complicated structure do you mean not as good because that's what it was boom Ooh, sick burn on international treasure margaret atwood uh, no who? you know who else they got oh my favorite character they got your girl Anne Crabtree in here. Yeah. Anne Crabtree. <laughs> I love her. She's great. She's the costume designer for seasons one and two, I believe. And I just, I miss her. <laughs> I miss her. So this was great to see her uh, being interviewed about the Handmaid's Tale costumes. And then that's a great uh, transition in itself to talking about the bigger impact on like protests and stuff and the Handmaid's Tale costume in there. Uh, it's always chilling to me to see how much of a symbol that's become. Like, I think it's very cool and I'm excited to be part of it. Yeah, it really actually, it made me feel comforted to see these protests. I don't know why exactly. Maybe just people <laughs> being more than six feet away from each other. And, you know, they they make some noise about, you know, the Trump administration coming in uh, after filming had been completed and how the show kind of took on this meaning and people are talking about, Oh, you know, um, kind of being a, you know, right on the precipice of like a Gilead situation. And Maggie Yatz talks about where you want to be is kind of in the middle of these political extremes where like, there's not totalitarianism and people aren't getting executed all the time, <laughs> which I agree. I would prefer, uh, that. And I don't know, but it's just like, you know, people, people want there to be this exceptionalism about the Trump administration, but it's like, This has been happening. Like, this has been a slow burn for decades. Like, the religious right in this country has just, like, chipped away methodically at all of the protections around reproductive rights. So, like, you know, it's a very real possibility that Roe v. Wade could be overturned by a Supreme Court, which boasts two alleged rapists, just FYI. And it's just like, you know, we're always so much closer than we think we are to dystopia. And actually, I I have seen kind of as coronavirus got more and more serious and, you know, people talking about living in a dystopia and people were pointing out like, um, yeah, to like indigenous people in America, it's always been a dystopia. So dystopia is in the eye of the. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think there's this kind of hard balance that we have to strike between I want to validate people's feelings of, wow, this is new to me and this is scary to me, while also holding in mind that, like, yeah, there's a certain amount of privilege involved with that kind of exceptionalism thinking, right? So both can be true at the same Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, I mean, there are are people who have been living with this kind of terror around any medical issue for a long time. Like, I mean, you're people with autoimmune disorders, but also just people who don't have health insurance. So it's definitely worth uh, being really compassionate about that. And again, uh, (laughs) know your history seriously this time. Well said. And to quote the very end of this documentary, uh, 17 and 18 year olds, uh, (laughs) next time vote. Um, So this, I think we're in agreement here that 
while this sort of latter last last bit of the doc tries to talk about sort of environmental impact and activism therein. It's a good message, but it does kind of feel like tacked on to the very end of the movie. And they try kind of half acidly to tie it in with Year of the Flood, um, which love Year, Year of the Flood, but it's also like, okay, this is like the last 10 minutes of the movie. I don't know what you're trying to do here. Yeah. And it's just, there could have been this really mm-hmm. organic through line, which they, they, you know, like they tied her activism in pretty seamlessly and you could have really tied this back to her you know her childhood with bug daddy um as like <laughs> look bug daddy it's regular daddy <laughs> shout out to ralph wiggum you're the real one i just one, think it's ralph. funny too that um because of shelter in place my partner mitch is like lying less than a foot away from me but all he can hear is my audio so it just must be weird to be every now and then hear me going bug daddy ha just cracking up yeah i agree that would have been a way better place to put it um than at the very end yeah and it's like yes i agree that if we kill the oceans we're killing ourselves but it just it feels so strange because what they primarily are talking about is sort of her impact on like women's rights and human rights and just being a woman in the serious literature scene when that wasn't the norm and kind of breaking barriers in that way. So then it's just like, oh, also the planet's dying. Peace. <laughs> Bye. Um, but I did appreciate. We hope it's still here. <laughs> I did appreciate the bit at the end of this where it's talking about kind of the end of Graham's life, um, which is, I think, the tie in mm-hmm. they're meaning to do with like, his later work becomes nonfiction and it's about nature and it's about all of this stuff. Um, anyway, <clears throat> the part that. And it was Graham talking about. <laughs> yes, it was Graham talking about the natural. Just tr- the natural world. And the part that really broke my heart is um, I'm not verklempt. I just have allergies. Um, <laughs> Listen, take the verklemptness. Listen. Tug those heartstrings, Molly. In these uncertain times, we all need to just let it out. I was very verklempt when I watched him describe his sort of state of mind. He was like, as I go through the changes in me, and he's referring to dementia. And so it's so sad and sweet for him to be so self-aware that he isn't aware. You know, it just broke my heart. What a sweetie patiti. And I just love the scenes, you know, they they don't belabor the point because he died very recently of just the care that Maggie Atts took of him during his decline and, and the way that the family was able to maintain his quality of life, even though, you know, they were facing this unprecedented situation with their partner, father, grandfather. It was just very beautiful. Like I just keep thinking of her like putting sunscreen on him when they're going out on that boat. It's just super I know. Sweet. Worth mentioning though that a lot of those um outing scenes are a um actually an Anne of Green Gables crossover because they go to Prince Edward Island. Um just want to point that out for the fans. <laughs> Love it. Um Love it. So yeah, it was a really beautiful soft landing talking about how, you know, they've been in love so long and they've worked alongside each other and this is kind of just the ending of their time together. And and he's very funny. Like they were looking at old pictures of her and Margaret, for whatever reason, likes to point at pictures and be like, that's not my sweater. That's not my hat in this picture. 
those aren't my earrings like we get it we know how oh my god so work. she's she's just she's a low oh i was thinking she like she stole them no. like she's like a low-key klepto because her roommates <laughs> threw her hush puppies out that time she's like oh you don't like my shoes i'll take yours no she's just like wants it to be known on camera that those were not her clothes somebody put her in different clothes no now the shoes on the other foot it's my foot they're your shoes um yeah so the so the <laughs> documentary kind of ends that way with this beautiful drone shot of them walking along the beach together and then the end credit says it's for this is for him because he died last year um Mm -hmm. and it's just beautiful and and sad i also think it's a personally i think it's kind of wonky to end a margaret atwood documentary talking about a a man even if it is that important man i agree well in the the final song they played was by a man and i was like what is this the hand (laughs) tv show but it's a beautiful Um, love story you know nonetheless and i really thought it was sweet and obviously i love it when people have boyfriends they love forever Mm -hmm. i really enjoyed it it was a great thing to watch a great thing to watch with you obviously because like nobody else well nobody what else would get my very hyper specific margaret atwood chose got that right as we were watching it um yeah and i'm just i'm glad we were able to come together to do this for our community the, you know, I wish I wish we could have done my other idea, which was to get everybody involved in The Handmaid's Tale to do a video like the Gal Gadot Imagine video, only we sing um, All Star by Smash Mouth. Um, yes, that that would have been the dream. So I know, you know, if anybody from the show is listening to this and you want to do something extremely goofy, um, let us know. You know, Ma- uh, Molly's friends with Maggie Ads on Twitter now. So like we're we're legit like we're happening um (laughs) yeah i i'd love to make that happen because you know what all that glitters isn't gold lately so yeah lately it's definitely not what a concept uh i had a lovely time talking to you thanks for engineering this thanks for watching this kelly and thanks for listening everybody i really miss our community a ton a ton a ton more than i thought i would i miss you guys so much and it's so funny to hear you guys pop up in other places like i was on a dear prudy chat the other day and a redhead popped in and say hi uh i was on bloom saloon the other day and some Mm -hmm. redheads there were talking it makes me feel happy and it makes me miss you so keep talking to us on twitter you know keep let's keep being friends (laughs) even though this is not uh 100 (laughs) always happening so yeah what are you, any last thoughts, Kelly? I miss you guys too. <laughs> I miss them too. <laughs> don't don't tell All them right. I said that, but I also miss them. Okay. <laughs> uh, As I am perched atop my maleficent castle of Scorpio solitude. Cooper. All right, everybody. So uh, now more than ever, take care of yourselves. Take care of your girlfriends and wash your hands. No lite, te bastardes, carburundorum. Dum 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 d